Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as DPS. I'm your host, Mary Ann Petrie. There is a non-denominational retreat weekend at the Resolution Center of Jacksonville, Florida. This will be a time of support and renewal for parents and grandparents on the journey of parental alienation. Standing strong in resilience, paving the way for good health and a great future. This will take place April 22nd, 20 through the 24th, and I will put the link in the podcast notes. I have a return guest. His name is author Michael Sayan. And we're going to talk about why we can't just get along. (laughs) Why Why can't we get along, Michael? (laughs) Why can't we all just get along? Get along, little doggies. Yes. And you were on my podcast last October 28th, season two, episode 120. And you've been on my podcast multiple times. I'm glad to get you on this evening. Thank you. Hey, thanks. It's a pleasure and an honor speaking with you. You and I always have good conversations. Definitely. So you're going to tell us why we can't just all get along. Why uh, this can't is a we big just mess. all get along? Yeah, no, <laughs> right. And, and that's, and it has been a catastrophe, right? It has been a catastrophe. It has been a dog in dog out fight for the past 200 years um and uh especially with the western culture so i'll go ahead and explain to you first of all uh, i wrote a book uh, remarriage and adultery in the bible it looks at the jewish historical um precedents of uh marriage divorce custody issues um in the old testament how it was brought over to the new testament how the jews were under roman occupation so they had the greco-roman law which was actually changing at the time of the uh, Jews were uh, at, where they had occupation over the Jews, and the uh, and the um, ancient Israel Jewish marriage practices. So we're going to look a little bit of the historical um, rabbinical practices, um, and then kind of how that whole uh, believe it or not the whole um, uh, the not only cultural war but the uh, war between the sexes that was started in Rome and, uh, and Jerusalem under the bride prices and the freedom of women from bride prices and dowry and sex slavery and how we're actually just repeating ourselves 2000 years later. Mm-hmm. So I'll let you yeah. start off with any questions you have. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, um, it's just, you know, the, the coverture, like I, I don't understand the coverture leading into feminism and contract law. Yeah, so, so feminism is nothing more than a push back against coverture laws, right? Coverture okay. laws said that um, it was a French word, uh, covert, uh, covert, I can't mm-hmm. pronounce it correctly, but uh, basically that the woman would lose her legal identity. Now that actually came from scripture where um, the woman became flesh of his flesh, Adam, um, you know, uh, bone of his bone. So what they actually coverture says is that the woman loses legal identity of herself. She actually falls under that of her husband at common law. Now that all started with the Anglo-Saxons going in the 10th century into Europe. Um, and, and so Europe just uh, adopted that from the Anglo-Saxons um, in the, like the early 10th century. And they just continued with that ever since. Now the Church of England, uh, right, we hear about the separation of church and state here in America, but uh, with the uh, the Church of England, right, we're looking at the, the Pope being about as powerful as a king. I'm sure you could hear different historical references, um, but basically the the expansion of the Roman and Catholicism uh, and the power of the Pope, and the Pope became more of a political figure. Now, so when you look at it, the Church of England, the Church of England was in charge of all the divorces um, and the basically legislations through the um, Ecclesiastic, I always I always get the name of this wrong. Uh, Ecclesiastical, I can't say. <laughs> Ecclesiastical, I can't say it. Courts. Um, so I'm just horrible. I don't know why I can't say that word. But basically, it was the the courts that were designed through a canon law, um, and that was basically the the law set forth by the Church of England. Now they handled all divorce issues. So divorce issues has always been handled through religion or the church. Right. Mm-hmm. It is. Uh, and it's usually been accepted through um, civil law. Now, that's historically. Right. So it's usually it starts with tradition. It starts with the family. It starts with religion. And then it kind of ends with the state. That's how kind of historical through many different nations and, and thousands of years of history. That's for the most part of how that kind of happens. So religion 
and society kind of deemed what was proper and what was not proper in regards to marriage, divorce, custody, patriarchy, monarchy, uh, matriarchy, um, uh, egalitarianism, feminism, all that stuff. It was really just run under the, whatever religion. I mean, it could be, it was the Jews, uh, conservative Jews. It was uh, the Muslim uh, under Sharia law, um, Christians, uh, Catholicism, Catholic law, canon law. So you have all these kind of laws and doctrines all mished together. And what it is, is the people kind of choose how society is kind of run. Usually that is instituted by the push of whatever religious institute. So the religion uh, sets the boundaries for both um, society as well as men and women issues. Now, men and women issues have always traditionally started at the marriage ceremony. The marriage ceremony teams, uh, stems to uh, set the precedence for the marriage. Now, so a lot of times um, in most, uh, I think 60% of the world right now does uh, arranged marriages still today. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where you'll typically see where there'll be prearranged marriages, there'll be bride prices, there'll be dowries. Um, so 60% of the world. So now we have our Western marriages, which is only predominant because we're kind of monetarily dominant. Um, and so we're kind of leading the world. Um, but remember, whenever you're dealing with marriage, divorce, and custody, you're dealing with two separate entities. You're dealing with religion of whatever territory, society, or nation you're in, and then well as civil law, right? What, what mm -hmm. society is deemed non religious, non-religious, but what society or the legislature uh, in that or the laws in that nation, what they deemed was appropriate. Um, however, it was usually hands off, right? It was usually the two people would get married and then they would report that marriage to the state, right? We see that in uh, Joseph and Mary, right? Joseph mm -hmm. and Mary, uh, they were betrothed. They went to Bethlehem because of the censorship. Um, and so where Jesus was born and then they had to, uh, and they did, they went there because the censorship wanted to know the, the birthplace and all this other stuff. So it all had to do with you just basically reporting your marriage and then them, them just basically putting it on record. And that's for the most part, that's kind of how it's been dealt with here in America as well. Now it's been changing. Now the change actually instituted, as I mentioned, coverture started around the 10th century and in, 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 um, before the 10th century, but uh, England adopted it in the 10th century. Now in America law is through English law. So we kind of get our, our precedence through English law. We get our, what's called our common law system through England. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of whatever England is practiced, even though, and this is where it's important to also understand, right? When you're understanding um, uh, authority, superiority, um, or what's called a Leviathan doctrine, or is that a Leviathan principle? That's where the king was supreme, right? The king had supremacy in England. So the government had supremacy, people did not have supremacy. However, when America, we adopted English law here in America, but what we did is we flipped the supremacy, keeping a lot of the English law though, and we started to say, well, we the people are supreme, right? The supremacy is with the people and the states, right, in the 10th Amendment, and then the enumerated uh, powers, uh, if it had to be delegated through the Constitution. Anything that was not delegated through the Constitution for the federal government belonged to the states and the people. Now, unfortunately, they've, uh, most courts have thrown out and the people, and they say anything not delegated um, specifically through the Constitution is for the federal government and the states, and they just throw out the people. However, um, people don't realize is that the state's constitutions existed before the federal constitution, right? So the, um, in the state constitutions, they actually, they gave the people rights, or they, they didn't give the people rights, they acknowledged their rights or the inalienable rights. So what happened was if the states, um, before the federal constitution came, the states said, hey, the, we the people have inalienable rights. So that's how come a lot of people believe, historical, uh, historical uh, people believe that the 10th Amendment was written in such a way saying that um, uh, the powers to the, the state and the people is because the people were, were, already, guaranteed, were already guaranteed uh, rights in the state constitutions. So the basically, it was for the states and the people to decide for themselves where that dividing line landed. And the thought was, is the reason why states had constitutions, because if you didn't like where the dividing line was, where the power of the state and the people began and ended, um, you could just leave that state and go to a different state. So mm -hmm. that was the that was the original intent of, of saying that, hey, you know, the 
um, is you're not, you know, it's not finite. You could just leave a state and go to a different one who had different constitutional rights given to we the people. <laughs> Do you have any questions on that so far? Oh, it's, it's just, uh, it just revolves around Great Britain. You know, like, like yeah. the Bar Association. Um, it just, everything is, we're, we're, I thought we had detached ourselves from Great Britain. <laughs> with the revolutionary war apparently that didn't happen well yeah and, and that's important to understand is that what we did is we um we adopted their laws right we adopted their their common law system right common law system was really most part or famous through england if it was not originated through england through the traveling courts right the traveling courts in england um in early english history uh what happened was they didn't have uh they didn't have a way to correspond with one another so when the traveling courts would travel from one town to another to be able, because they didn't have what was called statutory or codified law, um, they, uh, the courts made the law, right? And they made it through common law or through case law. They make a decision and they go to the next town and they would say, well, according to Brown versus Brown, um, you know, if a horse was stolen, um, it was, mod it was uh, the, the value, this is how we did the values, therefore if we bring it over to this town. What it did is, is it created, uh, without a codified law, like Roman law, uh, what it did is it created a way for the law to be flexible. But the king was the one who actually appointed the judges uh, for these traveling courts. Um, mm -hmm. So what happened was the king realized that if he could control the judges, um, which is happening here in America today as well, but if you could control the judges and appoint the judges, you can control the legal system. Um, mm -hmm. And so he was able to actually be, the king actually became very, very rich through the, the traveling courts or the common law system because he was, he was able to uh, tax it, taxize the people. Now, now the constitution really, really came from um, the, uh, the great charter, which we call the, um, uh, in England, they call it the, uh, uh, the, oh, I forgot the name of the document for some reason. Uh, it's, the original name is called the great charter. Uh, it's a the famous document for some reason I can't think of the name. I'll think of it in a second. But basically, the, it basically the the lords of the people rebelled against the king. Said, "Hey, you're using the judicial system for your own good. You're creating laws through these traveling courts, and then you're tax taxing the people or taxation the people through these uh, through these courts." And he was getting great power. And they said, "Well, wait a minute. You know, we want a declaration of rights to be able to say that, hey, we have rights here." So the lords or the land orders of England actually forced the um, uh, forced the king to sign this great charter under uh, you know under threat of knife. And I talked to you about that before briefly, but uh, basically the king did that. But that that actually became the precedence for the uh, the, the constitution. Mm -hmm. uh, the constitution is basically saying that they're they're human. It's a human rights document saying that mm -hmm. hey, these are the human rights of we the people, right? Not only does it flip supremacy and give supremacy to we we the people with checks and balances. Um, but it also says, and that's how we, the people are able to survive because the, and the government's able to survive because the, what they did is they, the, um, the founders, right. The authors of the constitution, um, and they actually said that, Hey, we know that power corrupts, you know, absolutely. So, mm -hmm. uh, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. So why don't we go ahead and create a system where we actually depend on people to be selfish and by creating a checks and balance system. Right. If the executive power becomes um, uh, too big for his bridges, then what would happen is the legislative branch would come in, you know, the, the, the Senate or the House, um, and they would be able to have the veto power. And because um, nobody wanted to give power to somebody else. So the whole checks and balance system isn't working under the, the premise of, hey, let, um, let's all get along. It was based on a premise of, hey, we're hoping that each um, you know, the legislative branch or the executive branch, the House or the Senate would be so, um, so selfish that they wouldn't want to give any of that power away. Now, the judicial system, when it was originally created, and we can see this through the Federalist Papers, um, the legislative system, when it was originally created, right, that third branch of government, that actually wasn't supposed to have that much power. But what happened was Mulberry versus Madison, they actually ex extended them, themselves power and they gave themselves the power, which we call judicial review. And the mm -hmm. Judicial Review, I believe in 1803, said that, hey, um, if it's regarding matters of constitutional issues, uh, we have the ability to, um, to veto uh, executive laws as well as legislative laws. So what they did is they, they deemed themselves not only the, um, the, uh, the judge, 
between uh, matters of legislative and executive branch, we the people and the government, us. But they, they as umpires, what they were called umpires. But they not only gave themselves, but they also gave themselves the the final the final word, the final say. So in a sense, people could say that judicial power in itself, by the um, judicial review, actually is the greatest of the three uh, or the most powerful of the three branches of government today. Mm -hmm. um, now, the, the problem is, is that we're in a broken system where the executive branch and the legislative branch, they're not really listening to the Supreme Court decisions. Um, and, but I don't want to go on a sidetrack. But uh, so we, we got this, uh, we got the system. Now, the system was an experimental system, right? The, the United States is governmental system. That was, it was really all just an experiment, right? The, it's called a great experiment. Mm -hmm. Now, what happened was originally to be able to understand the gender war that we're in today, um, we need to understand a little bit of the men and women issues. So this is kind of a little bit where I specialize in my study. Now, um, it, there's different religions, but most all religions usually start, now that you're looking at 90, 95, if not more, right? Start with a patriarchal system. That were the man, the hunter, the gatherer, right? The, the one who's physically stronger was the one who ruled the marriage, ruled the relationship. Now, feminists or true feminists will tell you that they don't believe in the institution of marriage because they believe it's an institution and they believe that um, egalitarian uh, principles uh, or feminist principles, or you can't be a feminist in a, in a marriage. Um, and so they actually, they actually don't like marriage. They, they would, they, most feminists, true feminists, when they originally started, I believe it was Feinstein, I can't remember the name, but uh, they actually said that they, they wanted to destroy the, the marriage itself. Now Marxism, which started in 1917 in Russia, they also believed in destroying um, the family uh, and, and marriage because they believe if you destroy the marriage, you destroy the family, the government will be able to take control over the children through the wife. Um, and so actually no-fault divorce was created in 1917 uh, under Marxism. Now, no-fault divorce actually started in Rome um, in, the, uh, in the first century, uh, first century A.D., uh, under Greco-Roman law, and that was uh, the the rule of thumb for Rome was is that a woman, though for six hundred years she fell under what was called coverture property law because of the bride price, so she fell under the um, she fell under the, the full authority of her husband. However, they created a new legal system where a woman can say, "Well, I don't fall under the legal authority of my husband if I'm married." I actually fall under the legal authority of my father when I'm married. So they, they still said, so they believed in a patriarchal system, not through the husband, but through the, the, um, the father or the heads of the clan. And so the woman believed that she could rebel against her husband and in Greco-Roman law and divorce her husband uh, and do all these other things against her husband because um, on the first century AD is that the, uh, or the first century um, because she would say that, hey, I fall under the authority of my father, and my father has the authority to supersede my husband. Now, that's the reason, why, and that's where no-fault divorce really originated from, and so women were really starting to divorce like crazy. Now, mm -hmm. that you kind of open that floodgates, right? You give women the, the permission to divorce after, being, um, after having uh, patriarchal rule for 600 years, uh, and the, divorce, uh, the women went crazy with divorce. Now, the same thing had, happened in Russia under Marxism. And when no-fault divorce was implemented, they actually, it was five to one ratio, five divorces for every one marriage. Um, and that was 1917 and 1925. So under, um, like I said, Karl Marx. So what we did the same thing, right? And we did in 1969, we had no-fault divorce. As soon as no-fault divorce was given, well, women, I'll back up a little bit more. So women were not allowed to really legally, as, as they were legally um, they were legally considered one with the husband. And, and uh, basically how it worked was, is that the, they would lose their legal identity. They actually became the legal extension of their husband. So they would lose all legal identity. Now, when they lost all legal identity, that means that they did not have constitutional rights because they lost the legal rights. So as far as when you're looking at the um, 1600s, 1800s under coverture laws, women, children, and slaves had none of those had uh, constitutional rights. 
um, until the 14th Amendment. When the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause came in, it started to give, it gave rights to the, right, we have the slave amendments, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment. It gave rights to the slaves, right, and uh, abolished slavery, but it also gave um, constitutional equal protection and basically, more importantly, citizenship to the blacks. Now, it also extended, it extended which was, they didn't really probably plan on it, but it, the women under feminist groups, right? Second wave, probably second wave feminism uh, around 1875 or so. I'm not exactly sure when second, femini second wave feminism, but it was probably around that time. But what happened was they used the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to say that, hey, you know, if the blacks have freedoms, if they're citizens and they have equal protection under the law, well, we as women, we want equal protection under the law. The court started granting women that equal protection under the law. And one of the first things that the women wanted was they wanted the right to divorce under equal terms. So before the 14th Amendment, women were not able to, for the most part, were not able to initiate divorce. And also because uh, women, children, and slaves were under property laws until the 14th Amendment, if a divorce happened, the father got 100% custody of the children. Now, when you're, uh, so what happens is, is, is you're going to start seeing is that, uh, and to kind of back up even a little bit more when we're looking at the gender wars, because we're really under a mm -hmm. gender war today. We're under gender war with the he, she pronouns, we're under war with transgenderism, homosexuality, um, uh, with the uh, Board of Education and what they're teaching our children. Uh, it's a flat out gen gender war today. That's how come my book kind of became a little bit popular. I started writing it about 25 years ago when we didn't really have a real big gender war. But right now we're in the midst of a gender uh, crisis, a gender identity crisis. Um, people don't know if, um, you know, we have the Jeff Younger, right, where his seven-year-old son is identifying as a girl because the the stepmother, um, this is not even the biological mother, um, mm -hmm. kind of was pressing him. And so, uh, and Jeff, and they, Jeff Younger lost that battle. And, and then originally we're given a little bit more um, effort became public and Ted Cruz got involved and then uh, Jeff get younger because of the pressure put on the judge got a little bit more rights but then they also threw a gag order on him right because they don't want him talking about it and so judges are trying to protect their butts with gag orders right gag mm -hmm. orders are nothing away is they say it's to protect the children to protect the children's right to protect the children's um, uh, privacy but no gag order is what it is it's really to protect the judge from being socially deemed inapt uh, and uh, as an as an abusive um, as an abusive person, or actually abusing the children, really list, realistically abusing the children through the legal system. Uh, but this is not new, right? So what happened was during coverture, men were giving 100% custody. Now, a famous lady on, on the early 1800s, 1820s, 1830s, it was Carolyn Norton. Carolyn Norton was a very prominent woman. She had very good friends in, in parliament. She was a famous writer and author, poet. And she, um, she um, petitioned to parliament, which you have to do in England, to actually to, to get a divorce. Now, at this time, there were only, uh, in all of English history, so we're looking at maybe 600 plus years, uh, there were only about 354 divorces in all English history for 600 years. And only four of those, I believe, were initiated by the woman. So to get a divorce, you had to go through the Church of England. Church of England did not believe, because of Catholicism, did not believe in divorces, right? Because that was a Catholic practice of the uh, canon law. And so they would have to petition a private act of parliament for a divorce. Now, Carolyn Norton uh, petitioned parliament, but was denied. But what she did start was something that her political influence that she did start was she started really feminism. And the feminist, um, uh, feminism is nothing more than egalitarian uh, principles that are pressing against uh, oppressive men. Right. That was the, the, the intent. Right. How do we push against oppressive men? So the very thing, what's the very oppressive thing for women? Well, coverture law. was. So what she actually did was that there was a human right issue with fathers because of breastfeeding and bottle, right, the bottle feeding they didn't really have. So uh, because of breastfeeding, she actually deemed it was a human rights issue for the fathers to get 100 percent of custody of infants because they weren't able to they were not men were not able to breastfeed the children. Parliament agreed. Um, and under, uh, and so when in 1830, they actually called, they actually created something called the younger years or the tender years doctrine. And then during the tender years doctrine, they gave, um, 100% custody to the mother while she was, um, breastfeeding the children or until the child was weaned. Now, supposedly it was until the child was four years old, then it would go and live with the father after it, it became, um, after the child became weaned. However, 
that age actually got pushed back. I think in just like a year or two later or several years later, English law changed it from four to actually 16 years old. And in the United States, we, um, and then we United States around 1850, most states like individually, because uh, divorce was handled through the individual states, federal government really wasn't involved. Um, and most states around 1850 started to uh, incorporate um, the feminist principles brought over from England on the tender years, the younger years doctrine. And um, they said, okay, hey, women were allowed to, um, uh, were given, they, they already had some power to divorce, right? It was very hard to divorce. Like under the matrimony clause of 1857 under England, um, uh, both men and women could divorce for adultery, but the woman had to prove that the adultery was continuous. And there was another added fact, like there had to be cruelty or abandonment. So she had to go, she, there was never a 50-50 equal way to, to, to divorce. And um, so women always had a hard time initiating divorces. And that was the, and that was really to, to be, and that really started because of bride prices. If you think about it, when you did a bride prices, they would consider the woman uh, acquired or legally acquired. So she would fall under property laws because she was acquired as a slave would be acquired right? You would purchase a slave. So where bride prices in a way, the legal system was purchasing a wife. And when she was purchased, she lost all legal rights. Now this is actually supported in scripture as far as slavery. Um, and you'll see in the slavery about bond servants and Yom Kippur and releasing the slaves every seven years is that, um, however, there was a problem with it when a slave got married and had children because the owner right? The, the master or the owner uh, was the, the, the man fell down to property rights. So many times, according to biblical Old Testament law, um, you can see this in, in the Bible, uh, uh, several places, is that if a man was a slave and he had children and he got in, in the slave master gave him a wife, that his children and wives, um, uh, he could leave at Yom Kippur every seven years. So every seven years, they let the slavery free. But however, the women and children were still the, 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 um, the property of the owner. Now, so a lot of these principles, you know, really fall, fell equal with coverture law. Now, according to coverture law, as well as biblical law, and you'll see this in Numbers chapter 30, is that a woman never had independent authority to sign contracts and do a whole bunch of other things. Um, and unless she was, a, unless, this is according to Numbers uh, 38, 9, it says, unless she was widowed or divorced. Now, if you were not widowed or divorced, you were considered either under the complete legal authority of your father, right? And then Numbers, numbers uh, 30, 16 tells us as long as she was young, living under her father's roof, right? Um, and so that's pretty much was a consistent act because women didn't have apartments back in the, you know, in the Old Testament yeah, right. as well, right? So they couldn't just run out and get a job and, and get like that. And a lot of times, believe it or not, under coverture laws, women were not able to keep their own paychecks. Uh, and they could not get jobs without the permission of their husbands, both in, uh, I know definitely in the United States. Um, they weren't able to sign contracts, right? They weren't able to make a lot of legal things. So the, um, the women actually joined in the early 1800s, joined the, um, the uh, freedom of slavery or the slavery movement, because as the slaves were saying, hey, we're people, we're, we, we have unalienable rights, promised to us in the Declaration of Independence. The women said, well, what about us? Yeah, we too. So they actually joined the slavery movement. Um, in the early 1800s. So the, uh, the tender years laws came to America, uh, right? First, first wave feminism started in 1840, right? You have 1850, younger years, tender years doctrine. You have around 1875, the 14th Amendment, given equal protection. Uh, and women basically given um, 100% uh, citizenship rights when basically in 1920, when they were given the right to vote. When they were given the right to vote, they were given the, they were really at that point um, considered to be full citizens having the full right of men at that point. Now, um, however, coverture still existed until the 1960s, where uh, a famous uh, United States Supreme Court case actually said that the that coverture is now obsolete. But that was not until around 1960, I believe, 1966, um, where coverture was was not still practiced as a normal practice. Under, under the common law system, even in the courts in the United States. Um, so it's always been, if this makes sense, basically, even though you're, I'm trying to give you a, a sense of the debolical, right? Of, mm -hmm. of how messed up, how a gender war has always been gender war. Uh, um, now the problem is, is that uh, you and I were talking earlier before this show, is that, um, so men were given 100% custody until the, uh, until the 1850s. 
Um, then women were given 100% custody of the younger, of the children in the younger years. And then those ages started to fluctuate of which age is the, what actually age is the tender years? You know, what age is the younger years? What age is that? And it started to fluctuate, right? Six, seven, nine in the United States. Um, so, um, and then uh, what happened was they basically under uh, a, a very well-known principle called um, status quo, is that the women said, well, you know, the child has already been with me for, you know, I had 100% custody, right? This is the early 1800s to the uh, mid-1900s. They said, well, you know, I've already had the, the custody. You know, they got, they got, you know, friends, they got family, they got a great education and doing really, really well. Um, you know, the other husband, uh, her former husband might have gotten married already with other kids and families. And they would just petition to the court and say, hey, can, under status quo, can I just keep the kids? So mm -hmm. what happened was the women started to really, the courts kind of just started to forget about the men. And under the tenure years doctrine, the, the children were just given full rights to the, to the mother. Now that, so it basically flipped on its heels. It went from 18, before 1850, man was given almost 100% custody all the time. And then after 1850, women were actually, you know, like a couple years later, women were given 100% custody almost all the time. And so it, it, it did an immediate flip. And, and this was based upon, and then the uh, equal protection clause really, um, really locked that in, right? So now men are starting to say, well, what about the equal protection clause, right? Is it, if, if the women could divorce, if the women use equal protection clause uh, to be able to get the right to divorce, to be able to get citizenship, to get all the rights as men, and to be able to get our children, why can't we get under equal protection clause, why can't we, the courts make it equal? Well, as you and I know, under Title IV D funding, mm -hmm. um, as well as other things, is that the whenever the government is involved, the government always wants two things. The government always wants power and it always wants money. So consider that once it has money or it has power, it is historically is never easily given either of those two up. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, um, long story short is that uh, when the, whenever a divorce happens, right? The mm -hmm. children are what the legal system says, the children become wards of the state. What that means is that if you just sign a petition, the, 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 the courts say, well, we have jurisdiction in your home now because we got to decide who gets the child. So now the jurisdictional power, you basically are inviting the government into your home. When the government's invited into your home, they don't just make a decision and then leave your home. They actually, they are now, the children become wards of the state forever, right? And uh, until that, that child becomes no longer a child and is an adult. Um, and then, um, but then they have to start paying taxes and other things, right? So the, once you start a divorce process or even a petition for divorce under temporary orders, the, the courts consider themselves having the jurisdiction over 100% over, over your children. Um, and because of that, um, uh, the courts have also been able to... Um, monetize the situation right they've been able to use the situation now the uh you talked about the bar association now the bar association really started in america around uh, 1875 in new york about 20 lawyers who actually started this this bar association um and then by the um, early 1900s 1910 i think it was um like 75 it was like large like 75 percent it was whatever it was it was a huge amount of most of the lawyers were now under this bar association the Bar Association is, is a certification. It's a, um, you get licensed through the state as an attorney, right? So the Bar doesn't give you any license. The Bar Association has no authority on its own. The Bar Association is nothing more than a, um, uh, than a illegal system that because it's, uh, oh shoot, it's a monopoly. Mm -hmm. um, so basically uh, under the monopoly system, um, they're, they're really able to control, you know, what lawyers know, what lawyers think, um, the, the education system of the legal schools, right? Bring in the legal document, the legal books are, are, uh, um, are printed, uh, through the, uh, support of the, uh, the family division of the bar association. Now the, the bar, you know, when you under, understand lawyers and judicial system, you have to understand the, um, oh, the. I can't, I got to remember, what was the, the Great Charter? What was that called in England? It was called the, um, um, can you was, help me out? Was it, was it in 1066 with King John? Well, yeah, but what was the, the document? It's a famous document everyone uses now. It's called the. Um, um, I know it too. It's like, it's. Um, uh, it's a famous document. It's, uh, I got to look at it. 
Um, One, oh, <laughs> I'm looking up to. So look up the Great Charter, England, and then it will be the. It's a super famous, well-known word. Yes. Uh, it's a premise of all human rights, um, in the world. Uh, oh my gosh! Mag so Magna important. Carta. Ma yeah, Magna, Magna Carta. Carta. Yeah, the Magna Carta. There right? I am. The, the, I think the Latin. The, yeah, that's what I think. That's the Latin term for the Great Charter. Thank you so much. The Magna Carta. <laughs> So the Magna Carta actually gave the human rights to the people, right? And that actually, I actually want to say Gandhi. Um, I heard actually Gandhi was inspired by the, the Magna Carta. So now the Magna Carta um, are, are not giving rights to the people, but they acknowledge rights to the people. Um, so they acknowledge the rights of the people. Now, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence recognizes that those are the natural rights of God. God has given you those rights, and man is doing, or the government's doing nothing more than, than you know, recognizing those rights. Now, so the, um, when you're dealing with, with custody, now, the, pro the important thing is that when you're understanding about the gender wars is that the, um, the Bar Association, now the Bar Association, uh, when you look at the Magna Carta, the Magna Carta was to break up the authority that the king had over the people in the judicial system. <clears throat> and so under Magna Carta, the Magna Carta promised, which the lords actually wrote up, is the, um, or the lords um, for the, the landowners, um, it gave them the right to a jury, right? So mm -hmm. the jury said, hey, the power no longer belongs to the judicial, uh, to the judge. The power belongs to we the people, right? So what it did is say, hey, we want to be a judged by a jury of our peers. We want to be judged by people like us. And mm -hmm. that's, you hear about um, nullification and other things. But um, the most important thing is that was the most important, one of the most important or the most important thing of the Magna Carta was jury. Now, the jury is promised in the Constitution, I think, for any matters over $20 or more. Now, family court was originally or divorce was originally handled through the civil courts. And through that means that you actually had the right to a jury. Mm -hmm. um, but what happened was in the uh, juvenile courts in the early eight, the late 1800s, I think around 1875 is around again, um, 1890, uh, is that according to different states at different times, they actually, uh, they actually uh, said, well, we want to get rid of the jury. And so they, they incorporated a, um, a, uh, a court practice in Europe called the Courts of Equity uh, from the Chancery Courts. And they basically said that, hey, under the Chancery Courts, the Courts of Equity, juvenile courts, um, they didn't have to have a jury, right? Because the children, were, again, were wards of the states and they didn't have constitutional rights because they're under the property laws. And so property laws of the children started to dissipate under the 14th Amendment. Um, and that's where children now um, are no longer considered property or not even part and parcel of the constitutional rights of the parents. Now they're actually considered um, uh, the wards of the state um, mm -hmm. and uh, dependents of the state. And so uh, it, the, the government now under the parents portray doctrine is saying that, hey, we are the parents of all the children, right? So the parenthood, when, when, when coverture law was destroyed, and this is where feminists didn't plan on, when coverture, law, when coverture law was destroyed under the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause, women wanted the equal rights to the children. But what it did is it invited the government into the family, and the government usurped 100% uh, authority over those children and said that parents are nothing more than, than, than guardians right, of, of those children, but those children belong to the state. And, um, and, and they, they incorporated the parents' portray doctrine, which is in 1608 from England. Um, and that was when the king said, well, hey, children, right, the, 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 you know, the, 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 the nation is the parent of the child or the children. Uh, and that actually came, believe it or not, historically, I think that was like a 300 BC term when you're dealing with Caesar, when, they were, when he would be considered the, um, the, the uh, parent of the nation, right? He was the father of the nation or the, the, the fatherhood, right? The father of the nation. And you'll, you'll hear that. And that was basically the parents' portray doctrine uh, incorporated in 1608 uh, England. But however, when America took over the parents' portray doctrine, they used that doctrine to say that, well, hey, the nation is the true parent of the children. Therefore, parents, when the coverture law was dissolved in uh, 1875, 1876, under the 14th Amendment, um, that uh, the, the children were no longer under property rights of the parent of the father uh, or either parent. But it actually, that property rights or the authority changed from the parents to the government. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So the 14th Amendment, it actually got rid of parents' authority over their own children. And we're starting to see that in the legal system now, right? And we're starting mm -hmm. to see 
the state started to appoint guardian ad litems. What are guardian ad litems? Guardian ad litems is nothing more than the state saying, hey, these children are wards of the state, so we are going to um, we are going to claim legal authority and responsibility over these children, and we're going to appoint them a, 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 an attorney who actually um, will vi who violates the constitutional and inalienable rights of their original parents, right? And so they actually do that, and that was under the juvenile court system where a lot of these things were were practiced and got away with just because the the child was too young to practice their own constitutional rights. Mm -hmm. So we're in a huge, huge mess. Now, the problem is, historically, men and women have never shared 50-50% custody, right? It has never historically been done. It has never historically been attempted. Now, the, the, that, I, that I'm aware of. Now, the reason why is because when you're looking at a divorce, divorce is a lawsuit, right? You're suing mm -hmm. the other party for breach of contract. And if there's breach of contract, there's penalties. Now, one of the things is penalties is that you would get, um, you would get, uh, you would get the custody of the children, you would get the home, uh, you get the finances, whatever it takes to take care of those children. Now, because you would be suing for a breach of contract under the penalties, and the winner, right, would be able to get the the claim, the prize, get the booty, get the children. Now, mm -hmm. what the problem is that under no fault divorce, right, where there's no enforceability anymore. Uh, under legal contract law is that basically the courts are no longer and you're no longer suing the other party for breach of contract when you go to courts. So courts, uh, family court no longer acts as a court, but they act as an administrator, administrator, because what they're saying is they're saying, hey, we're um, instead of instead of being able to judge who is the um, who is the injured party. Right. They're saying, well, mm -hmm. hey, neither party's injured because when you do a no fault divorce, you're saying, hey, nobody's injured here. Right. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, well, we use the best interest of the child standards because nobody's injured. So we'll just give the child to we'll, we'll decide custody according to whatever is best for the child. Now, so that was the premise of the best interest of the child. standards. So the best interest of the child standards was adopted with the no fault divorce. Those came as a package deal. Now, the reason why is the feminists said we believe we want to have no fault divorce. Right. They said the reason why we want no fault divorce, is because. The proving um, adultery or even more importantly, uh, uh, proving abuse in a home is very difficult, right? Cops mm -hmm. believe, cops for the most part, even with women or children, but they're like, hey, you know, um, uh, we don't know if you're self-inflicted wound, um, you know, according to clear and convincing evidence on a, on a criminal legal system, right? The criminal law is that we have to physically, you have to have a witness. Somebody had to witness your, your husband hitting you, right? There had to be some kind of physical evidence. And a lot of women couldn't come up with that evidence when they filed for divorce because they were given the right to divorce for, for cruelty and abandonment and abuse and other things. But uh, they weren't able, they, they had a hard time proving it. And let alone family court is not a, uh, does not use clear and convincing evidence. It uses preponderance of evidence, uh, which we'll talk, it's a lower system of evidence. So you really, the person really wasn't able to be found guilty of a crime in family court because they didn't use the correct level of evidence. Plus they weren't able, they didn't have a jury. So, you know, you would be able to, so long story short, they use a different legal system. Um, mm -hmm. So long story short is that the women said, hey, we want to be able to file for divorce, but we don't want to have to prove that abuse has happened, even though abuse has happened. So the divorce, the, the no fault divorce system was be able to give women the right to divorce without proving abuse. Mm -hmm. Now it was packaged a little bit differently to the legislators um, in Ronald Reagan, but originally that was the original intent. Now. It, what it did is a promise. The reason why the men adopted this legislation is because they said, hey, we'll get rid of the tender years doctrine where 100% custody is automatically given to the mother and we'll give it to the best parent. So the fathers thought that, hey, this legislation will, you know, best interest of child standard will work for us because it will get rid of the tender years, the younger years doctrine. And what it will do is to say, hey, uh, it doesn't matter the age of the child, right? It will just, who is ever the better parent. So the, the fathers <laughs> thought they were going to get a better shake at custody. So they jumped on, the men jumped onto this. The churches didn't really push back at all. Um, and so the, uh, and so, but the men jumped on this because they thought that they would get more custody of the children. So that's why they jumped on to the best interest of child standards because of the, um, because of the, uh, or no fault divorce because of the best interest of child standards. Does that make sense? Yes. I'm sorry. I'm talking a lot of fast because I know we have a little bit of time, but so what <laughs> happens is that now, according to well, what happens is you're dealing, if you're not dealing with a suit, right, you're not suing for breach of contract, right, uh, which is under a marriage license, it becomes under contract law, 
Um, so if you're not suing for breach of contract, well, then the there should be a presumption of 50-50. And that a lot of uh, fathers are, are, a lot of people are pushing for the 50-50 uh, legislation um, because they're saying, hey, well, we should have, now let 50-50 legislation just says, just under contract law, an example, if two, if, if you and I own a business or two people own a business together and they decide to sell that business, right? They decide to, they have a, a an opt-out clause in the contract. They decide to sell that business, one, per, one person. If there wasn't a breach of contract, right? And there was an opt-out clause in that, um, or they both agreed to it, then what the court would say, okay, let's go ahead and divide the assets equally, right? So mm -hmm. there would be a presumption of 50-50. That's what 50-50 uh, 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 um, legislation means, that there's just a presumption. However, um, it's only presumption, so it's, it's rebuttable. But that rebuttable means you need to have some kind of you know, pretty substantial evidence. Now, the legislator or the judicial system, the bar association, the lawyers and the judges don't want it because uh, the family court makes more uh, money, right? It revolves around the family court than all the other courts combined, right? I think it's like a $50 billion a year industry. Um, and uh, it would just, it would just uh, take away a large portion of the, uh, the financial, uh, it would also uh, destroy um, uh, the federal fundings that the state gets to so the Title IV-D fund, right? Because they get the federal funding for a child support. So if you get 50-50 legislation, uh, you're starting to get, you get, you get rid of basically uh, child support, a lot of the child support, um, or that child support is only for maybe for a small amount of time, like six months in some, uh, some nations. So um, basically the federal government would lose money. The, 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 the legislation would lose power. It just, it would be, and, and what would happen is the 50-50 is that it would get the courts out of the family's life, right? The children really wouldn't become wards of the state because there's, if it's 50-50, there's a presumption of 50-50, well, then you don't need to continually go to court to fight over, you know, where those dividing lines of 50% of custody, 75% custody, legal custody, uh, you know, all this, you don't, you don't have to fight about that stuff because everything's 50-50. And you would probably do more uh, mediation and arbitration and less than, and, and spend less time in actually with the judge. Now, this, so what happens is the legislators are against this because, um, the women under the um, uh, VAWA, right, Violence Against Women Act, um, and uh, other things is that they actually, uh, the feminist groups uh, and the National Organization of Women, they, I think they get like 50, 50 million a year from the federal government, um, something like that. But um, they are, they are, because of how much money they have through the federal government and acts, uh, they are incre incredibly powerful, right? Feminist groups are incredibly powerful. Now, the feminist groups don't want 50-50 custody um, because uh, they're claiming that, well, you know, hey, the, a child will be more likely to be put in an abusive situation. Um, however, statistically, people would argue right now that 75% of children are actually given to the abuser um, mm -hmm. right now because you're looking at whoever initiates the divorce, um, uh, the um, uh, either believe that they're going to get the children or they, uh, um, you know, they, they're, or they're actually the initiator of the divorce uh, covenant itself, which is a violation against the, uh, against the um, uh, covenantal promise that you made to the other spouse. Um, whatever the case is, usually the um, one who initiates divorce is the one who actually wins the court case. Because if you think about it, if it's a lawsuit and you initiate the divorce and you're given a divorce, you're considered the winner. Right. Mm -hmm. And the and as far as war, as far as lawsuits, if you win, you get the majority of custody and the financial and all the other incentives. Right. The booty. So mm -hmm. if you're initiating divorce, you get the divorce, you get the booty. And so you're looking at around 75 percent, I think, or something like that. I heard is that um, the, they, the they're, they're, they're the ones who initiate divorce. Seventy five percent of the time are the ones who actually who actually get the custody or get the majority of the uh, winnings. Uh, a divorce situation. Um, right now, we're looking at around 83% uh, of women are them getting the primary custody of children. Um, uh, divorce, 80, about 75 to 80% statistically, uh, women are initiating the divorce because they know they're going to get the children. But more likely, the the um, women who uh, who actually file for divorce who have children are the ones who actually get the children. I think it's like, I heard one report from Stephen Baxterville, I believe that he said it was like almost 100% of the time that the women who have children and initiate divorce, they're the ones who actually wants to get, you know, custody like 100% of the time. So we got this whole gender war. Now, the thing is that gender war cannot stop. They're thinking that under contract law, because of the enforceability factor, 
right? Unilateral no-fault divorce is unconstitutional. The reason why is because under the uh, uh, contract clause, or the, there's a contract protection under the Constitution that says that, this, uh, that the federal government um, cannot infringe, right? Government cannot infringe on private contracts. So when you're like, getting a marriage, you're actually making a private contract. Now, the marriage license was a way for the state to be able to say that, hey, you're actually making a license. Uh, the state is a third party, and they're giving you... And, and whenever you get a license for anything, right, hunting license, driver's license, you're really saying, the state is really saying that it's not an inalienable right. It's a privilege, right? And we're granting you the privilege to do this. Um, and so there basically really is, when you have the say, if you have the power, the power to say no, you actually have the power. So the, the question is, who has the authority in a marriage uh, when you get married? Well, the state's claiming that we have the ultimate authority because we have the power to say no, right? The veto power. Um, so the under so it becomes a marriage license, and then they also get um, they they make children wards of the state through the marriage license, as well as uh, they're able to control the divorce process through the marriage license. Mm. Do you have any? Uh, sorry, I know I'm talking about. Do you have any questions so far? So um, things had flipped. Um, first, you know, women were getting custody, and now it's kind of flipped. Then the men were getting the custody. Then it flipped back to the women getting the custody. And now it seems like it's reverted. The pendulum has swung, swung back. And now the fathers are getting the custody. Right. And then you're going to see that not the fathers are getting custody. So right, statistically, we know that 83% of primary custody is like in Minnesota, 90% of primary custody is given to women. Um, mm -hmm. Because the ones, if you know you're going to get the children, you're going to initiate the divorce. You're less likely to initiate a divorce if you know you, if you believe statistically you're going to lose those children. So the ones who initiate the ones, the um, petitioner is the one who usually is the one that uh, know they're going to win. And that's, you know, like I said, 75, 80%. Now the problem is, when it comes to actually physical abuse, right? To protecting women, to protecting more importantly, the children. Now, um, we're in a culture where America is, we have a God and that God is, is sexual, right? Is a sexual mm -hmm. God. Now, um, Los Angeles actually means uh, fallen angel, right, kind mm -hmm. of thing. And through, through Los Angeles, right, we see a lot of our movies, right? The sexual, sexual perversity. Now, what happened was feminism, they wanted sexual perversity. They wanted the women that you can read in, in, in all their uh, transcripts uh, is that they wanted, they wanted to destroy marriage. They wanted uh, women still be um, um, permissible, uh, sexually um, promiscuity. Uh, promiscuity. Uh, they wanted uh, sexual promiscuity. They wanted to be, you know, my body, you know, my choice. Um, and they also wanted the, the ability to uh, abort because if you have, if you get pregnant, right, and you're not married, all of a sudden, um, you're, you're bound in chains. So the feminists believe that, hey, we, we need um, uh, abortion, the right to abortion to be able to free ourselves so we're never chained down, right? We always have the freedom to express ourselves sexually, to be able to legally take control of ourselves, destroy coverture laws. So when it comes to the, the home, like a stable home, feminists don't like stable home. They believe, they say marriage is an institution, yes, but it's still an institution. Right. And that's what feminists will tell you. So they don't. Um, and, and because of, of uh, women now, like black women right now, statistically, 40 uh, percent of them are getting pregnant out of wedlock. Well, um, they're leaning on the government for help. Right. And so now we're putting a great financial burden and strain on the government. The government says, well, we don't want the financial strain. So they created the child support system and they created the deadbeat dad uh, propaganda to be able to, um, to get fathers, right, to, to, to pay for these, these kids that they don't, even have a, they don't even have a right to visit or don't even have a right to see, and they don't have any legal rights to decide you know, where the kids go to school, college, sexual, or, or any kind of operations and so forth. So now the, the, the legal system is correct. They'll never say this, but under their, they'll never say this, but under their breath, they believe that, um, that if two people, men and women cannot get together married, they're not gonna be able to get together they're not going to be able to get along divorced, right? Mm -hmm. And that's true, right? Uh, not only do we have gender differences and different ideals in the way we think and process things, right? Um, but we're, a lot of us are, if we're not saved or we're not Christians, we're sinners by nature, right? And the majority of people we know in the world by Christ, that the majority of people, right, broad as a gate and, uh, and you know, broad as a way leads to destruction, but narrow as a way that, that leads to eternal life. So we know that the majority of people in this world are going to be unsaved 
and they're going to be slaves to sin. And so there's this sinful nature. Um, now, according to the Bible, the children uh, that uh, even sinners, right? God says that if even you who are sinners, you don't give bad things to your children, you give good things to your children. If they ask for a uh, bread, you don't give them uh, a serpent, right? Or you don't give them a rock. And if you don't, they ask for fish, you don't give them a snake, right? Mm -hmm. It says you who are ungodly, unloving, unbelieving people, you still know how to give good things to your children because you'll die for your children. Even unbelievers will die for their children. However, the state doesn't recognize that. The state's saying, well, like it started in a lot of times, start, like in Massachusetts in the 1600s, they were taking children away from parents if the, because the, they didn't have children labor laws. So the, if the children were not working uh, and, and children were not working in a way that would product, be productive for them later on in life, they would uh, take those children away from their original parents and give them to different parents to be able to, to put them in the workforce where they can do mm -hmm. something that maybe had pro productivity because education was, wasn't as big that, during that time. So, um, but the state has always been um, about um, not only taking control of the children, but be able to redistributing the children, right? And that's, we have a huge problem because we have 500,000 children in the foster care system today. Mm -hmm. You know, Trump recognized that. He realized it was a problem and he promised it. He was going to do something about that. He was actually talking about giving Ivanka Trump the uh, power to look into it. But he did recognize that the great system. Now, the reason why is because the government's getting involved. The government's splitting up, um, splitting, taking away children from parents. Now, what people don't realize is that if you're, uh, by nature, if you're a lion and you're going to attack a herd, you don't go after all the, 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 the animals, right? You, mm -hmm. you find that one who's weak, right? And the one that can't take care of themselves mm -hmm. and you attack them. And so you always get the stragglers. Well, the government does the same thing with children, right? The, the government, what happens is a divorce happens. A mother statistically will get uh, custody of the child. The mother's working full time, right? Because she always hires, they usually hire lawyers, women use hire lawyers. So um, uh, they'll, they're trying to pay the lawyer fees. They're trying to pay for their own. They're trying to be able to get a career after being a mother for certain years. And what happens is they, they have a hard time raising the children, right? They have three kids, four kids on their own. And they just don't have, they don't have, you know, they don't have the time. They don't have the, the hands. They don't have the finances to pay for it, right? So what happens is that the, the government then sweeps, swoops in because somebody files a report. Usually the school system, the majority of child protection service um, um, uh, investigations are done through the school systems. Um, and so they'll see some of the school, um, the child will say something, the child will look down the church, have a bruise, whatever the case is. Uh, they're mandatory reporters. They call up, they call the police, or they call, and child protection service comes in. And they say, hey, this mother can't take four, these three kids, four kids, two kids, and raise a job and everything on her own. Let's go ahead and redistribute the wealth. Let's redistribute the children and let's get the children into a foster care system until we can actually get them into a good home. They did that in, in with American Indians. We had a huge problem with the American Indians originally. They were taking the Indians' children away, giving them to white, uh, white folks. And it was a huge, huge problem. That has now been somewhat corrected. But the government has always been about redistribution of children. Get the children away from. Now, what happens with the high divorce ratio, right? We're looking at you know, 40, 50 percent, uh, you know, the divorce ratio. And even more people are getting married. People don't know this, but the cohabitation increased 900 percent since, I believe, 1980. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, or actually, apologies, 1969. Um, so what happens was, even though 1980, it looks like the divorce ratio has been going down. The reason why is because the cohabitation rate has skyrocketed 900 percent. And people are having children out of uh, out of uh, out of um, out of marriage, right? Out of co in cohabitation, um, and then uh, but the parents and they don't really worry about that because a lot of times the women can still attack the men to be able to say we want them to be financially responsible, and the federal government has created uh, financial uh, federal mandates and laws to actually say that a father can't jump you know jump ship he can't go to one state to a different state to be able to to uh, to escape child support. So the women know that they're probably going to get either financial support from the government. So what happens is a lot of people talk about this is that when you, when a woman goes through a divorce, she still has a husband, but her husband is the government, right? She relies on the thing is the government does the government doesn't tell her what to do. Right. So she gets a little bit more freedom with the government, but she does still get the financial provisions and protections from the government. But what the government says, but the government is tricking the women because the government's really saying is that, 
All you have to do is file for this divorce or have a child out of wedlock or just go ahead and submit something to the court. But as soon as you submit something to the court, that child's no longer your child, right? You're that, long, mm -hmm. that child is no longer under the constitutional uh, rights of, of, of your extension, right? Um, uh, but, or, or under the property laws of you anymore. The, the child is really under parents' portray doctrines. Uh, they, they belong to the state. As soon as you file anything with your family or with the children, the, the state is going to swoop in and, and, and be able to get and ruin that privacy that's guaranteed through the Constitution, right, our privacy <laughs> rights, and um, be able to be able to control the child, not just for the time being, but forever, as long as the child mm -hmm. remains a child. And so anyways, we're in a situation that it's the courts don't want to give 50-50 custody, right? Um, mm -hmm. The courts realize that historically, um, men and women have never been able to get along. They, if they won't be able to get along in a, in a marriage, they won't be able to get along in a divorce, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and they're less likely to be get along in a divorce. So, what happens is you're dealing in a system that there, there's almost no way to fix this, right? The only way to fix this would be to revert back to the patriarchal system that we see in the biblical principles, right? The, the Bible. But, however, um, uh, the courts are in the courts of feminist groups and everything else is pushing against anything that looks like a biblical marriage, biblical relationship, biblical family. But that's the only way for us to, to be able to create some kind of normalcy and protection of the family and protection of the children. Hmm. Well, this is a big mess. Um, it is. You know, it's uh, the judges don't want to hear. I mean, even if a woman has a lot of documentation of domestic abuse, then the other side will come up with something else and the judge will hand the child over to the abusive parent. Statistically, they say 75% of kids are given to the abusive parent, statistically. Now they have, it's hard to prove, prove those statistics, but they believe that, most people believe that statistically, right? Because if you're looking with a narcissist, you're looking at an abuser, um, somebody with mental problems um, is that uh, is that typically uh, in the Bible it says we worship God in our own image, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the judges are going to give custody to somebody who looks like them, who acts like them, who thinks like them, and talks like them. So when they when the judge sees somebody comes in with the narcissistic um, <laughs> and all the other stuff that they have, the judge is going to say, "I have that. I like that. I know I'm a good parent. They must be a good parent too." And they're giving these kids to these uh, abusive narcissists. And they could be either mother or father. But now mm -hmm. we're finding out is that the, 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 uh, the judges, because of the father's rights movement, is pushing against these false allegations. But what they're really doing is they're, they're attacking the innocent women, right? And mm -hmm. they're, they're giving the children to the guilty women. And, um, and uh, it's just what happens is under preponderance of evidence, you really can't do this. you got to have a jury. You got to go through the criminal system, right? When it comes to abuse, neglect, um, all those are crimes. They have to go through the, through the criminal system because the criminal system is more likely to use uh, evidence and use witnesses and testimonies and juries. But when you go through the family court system and you skip all that stuff, mm -hmm. there's no way you're, the judge who is untrained in psychological matters, they don't have a degree in psychology, or, or even the medical field, they're not going to be able to say if a child's being abused physically, sexually, or mentally or not. And they're trying to be able to say, well, I'll have a friend of mine, right, or somebody that I know be able, who's a psychologist, look at it. But then you're creating a monetized system where um, uh, they're, they're, they're just going to be, the, the, the therapists a lot of times are saying, well, if I like the judge's business, I want to make sure I please the judge. So I want to make sure that I judge in a matter that's worthy of the judge's, you know, consent. Um, and it, it just creates a corrupt system. Mm -hmm. not, saying, not saying they're not educated, but what it is is, crea is creating a corrupt system. We have to realize that when it comes to criminal matters, those have to be handled in criminal court. They cannot be handled in family court. Um, and, and they just, they simply can't. And, and just recently this year, uh, California um, uh, judges are now given extended powers where they actually can choose um, they can choose how, uh, um, how supervised visitation will look like most likely with the fathers. Um, but again, this is just, this is, this is a, this is a system where it's corrupt because it is monetized. Um, mm -hmm. and there's not checks and balances, uh, checks and balances doesn't mean a judicial community, a committee overlooking judges. Cause that's just like saying, Hey, I'll have my friend down the street you know, tell me if I'm doing something wrong. No, you want to be able to have somebody who's non-biased, 
and it has to be through a checks and balance system where that um, just like the uh, branches of government, it has to be somebody who's actually is against you who's looking at this. It could be more or that be able to get rid of that biased decisions. But long story short, yes, you're right. The judges are now taught to um, when somebody comes, when a woman comes in frantic and she's screaming because she loves her children and her children get raped, getting abused because of the sexual culture that we're in. Um, and uh, they're less likely to believe, be believed. And judges are going to be looking for people who are seem to be non-sympathetic, who are who are creating abuse uh, or yelling abuse, rather than the people who are frantic and sincerely care. And mm -hmm. that's that's historically, statistically, that we can literally see. Um, so it would be very hard pressed to prove anything against that. Well, I mean, this was this was excellent. Uh, this was an excellent uh, history lesson and everything that's going on in present time as well. Um, it's just, I, I just wish um, mothers and fathers who are getting screwed over by the system would work together to try to find a way to, I don't know, fix it or not bash each other. Right. Well, the only way is to be able to get the power away from the government, right? Mm -hmm. So there has to be there has to be a recognition that the children are part and parcel of the constitutional rights of the parents again, um, and that the government, once they make a decision, they cannot continually to put their foot into the parents' lives because that violates the privacy rights in the state constitutions as well as the federal constitution. The uh, the premise of the Fourteenth uh, Amendment, um, not due process right, but the substantive right. Uh, you know, substantive, I think it's called substantive right of the 14th Amendment, where it actually, they under, um, like an example, Roe versus Wade, where they said that the government cannot jump in because of privacy issues. Um, there's the home, and under the many Supreme Court cases, is that there has to be a privacy issues. Um, you can't do gag orders. You can't do orders of protection, right? These, if somebody breaks a crime, you throw them in the jail, right? And you extend that jail time, the more that they commit, right? Um, mm -hmm. And then you give them three strikes and you're out. And we already have the legal system to handle it. The family court is, is handling, trying to handle all matters of the family and life um, and to raise those children and say what's best for those children, but they cannot do that. That's mm -hmm. not what they, um, they can't have. They're already, yeah, they just, long story short, um, we got to go back to the biblical principles of family. We got to stay together, stop initiating. If you don't believe in the concept of marriage, don't get married, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you also can't be a sexually promiscuity if you, because otherwise you're going to start having, uh, you know, a child out of wedlock um, and many other things. And uh, that still creates an inalienable right problems, you know? So again, we, we got to, the only way to fix this, is we got to go back to the biblical principles of family and relationships and marriage and start, respecting what a covenant is and a covenantal promise that we made to the other person. Mm -hmm. If we've been divorced, we're just inviting the government into our home. Oh, exactly. No, yes. Well, I'm so glad to have you on and I know I'll have you back on again. <laughs> Thank I you. Yeah. This, oh yeah. God willing. Yeah. I think I this is it. like the fifth time you've been on my show. <laughs> yeah. You're, yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because we also talked about woe to the wedding band, and I think people should listen to that podcast as well. That was, that oh, was yeah, excellent. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Woe to the wedding band. <laughs> well, hey, uh, don't jump off. A Slam the Gavels, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in the family courtrooms. I am your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us here again with Michael and other guests in the future. Thank you again, Michael. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you.